Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Mike Lawrence. I'm from Florida, a state that has looked at both progress and change and said, no, thank you. Uh, <laughs> that and more. But before that, would you let two strangers go through your most personal messages and broadcast them to the world? Well, each week, Nicole Dressbell and Matt Stroop do just that to anyone brave enough to sit in the studio with them on the podcast Inbox. Listen along as they explore their guests' inboxes, you know, their text messages, their email inboxes, for comedy gold, nothing is off limits. I don't know when my episode of Inbox is running, uh, but I sat down with them recently and did this, and it was really nerve-wracking. They found some texts between me and JC, the producer of this show, which make us sound like lunatics. Um, they found some emails between me and some kinksters about plans <laughs> for incredibly filthy evenings. It's crazy. So check out Inbox now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite shows. Also, Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. I always want to say fingerprints. That doesn't make any sense. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail, just using your own computer and printer. Stamps.com makes it easy. They'll send you a digital scale that automatically calculates the exact postage you need. They'll even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. No need to lease an expensive postage meter. We use Stamps.com at risk and the story studio, and we love it. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus post postage, and that digital scale without long-term commitments. Go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in risk. That's stamps.com, enter risk. Stamps.com, 
never go to the post office again. Also, if you are still in the giving mood this holiday season, don't forget to visit us at patreon.com slash risk. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash risk to become a member, one of our patrons. There's so much fabulous bonus content there, and it's just a great way to help keep risk running. Or another way you can help us out is to buy a gift certificate at thestorystudio.org. Give the gift of storytelling. One-on-one sessions with me over Skype, storytelling training, you know, in person in New York or Minneapolis or Los Angeles, or our video courses that you can take in your own time at your own pace. Just go to thestorystudio.org. There's lots of ways to give, gift certificates or other ways to give others the gift of storytelling training. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is The Saxists behind me now. And I'll tell you something. If there's a good name for a band, that ain't it. (laughs) This is our first episode of 2018. And oh my Christ, folks, this is the year that I'm going to lose... 35 pounds and get totally ripped and, you know, stop drinking again and take up veganism again and meditate an hour and a half every day and um, find a husband. I mean, holy shit, is this going to be a year? I'll tell you one thing I am definitely going to do this year is become more of an activist, more civically engaged than ever before because it is more necessary than ever before this year. I've been looking at this book by Jocko Willink, this ex-Navy SEAL called Discipline is Freedom. And I, uh, I become exhausted just looking at the cover of the book, but I, I want to adopt a little bit of that optimism or fascism, whatever takes the weight off. We are calling this week's episode Try a Little Tenderness, named after the, um, you know, great Otis Redding song. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Miles Walser. Uh, He shared this wonderful story with us in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. That was such a treat to visit Madison. I'll tell you, Madison, Wisconsin, that's a town... They're not giving up beer this year (laughs) or any other year. (laughs) But before that, we're going to hear from one of the funniest people in the business of funniness right now, Mike Lawrence. Uh, He was a writer for Inside Amy Schumer. He's written for, if you see anything on TV that's a roast, Mike has written for that. 
speaking of roasts, there are some fat jokes in the story, but I think in the context, I hope they're not too upsetting to anyone. Anyway, here he is now at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles with a story we call Message to Mackle. There's one sentence that can describe me, my comedy, everything. It's the inability to let go. I still like and eat the same things I did when I was five years old. Uh, My favorite position in bed is fetal. It's the only (laughs) one I've perfected. (laughs) I'm, I'm from Florida, a state that has looked at both progress and change and said, no, thank you. Uh, We just want to be what we are. Uh, the only reason Texas sleeps comfortably at night. Uh, I was in a relationship for six years, never had sex once, totally cool with it. Uh, so that's, that's me. And even the first job that I had, worst job ever, I worked at a fast food restaurant for seven and a half years because when you love life, life loves you back. Uh, I legally can't say which one it was, but it rhymes with Dick Monalds. And if you think your boss was a fucking clown, mine actually was one. Uh, So I started at this job where I could never say I was loving it and uh, started there May 28th, 1999, all the way to uh, December 16th, 2006, started at $5.25 an hour, ended at $6.45 an hour after five raises, three of which were government mandated during the Bush administration, (laughs) and two of which I earned. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It was... uh, a rough job. It's where I learned that I could be a comedian because it taught me that nothing is ever beneath me. Um, I used to, this was a, a thing that I did that made me realize I could be funny. Because if you can make people that work at a fast food place laugh, you're, you might be okay. Uh, I would do this thing. So I was always in the drive-thru. I was the first voice that you heard. So you may not recognize me now. Now you recognize me, right? Uh, <laughs> And uh, I, I worked in the drive-thru. People would come in. I would take their money. Then, and, and that's a person called drive-thru cash. Then the second person that you deal with, the person you get your food from, that's the presenter. What I would do, a game that I would play, and what made me realize I might be able to be a comedian was, I would play a game where uh, when the person that I dealt with, after seeing how they look, when they went to the presenter, I would have to do a funny voice or character for that person to make the presenter break and laugh in front of that person's face. Which 90% of it was just fat shaming. Uh, Most of it was just like, I just want my chicken nuggets. It was fun. Um, Everything else about the job was terrible. 
people will often ask me, what's the worst thing that ever happened to you in the seven and a half years you worked at a fast food restaurant? And, uh, you know, all of it. Uh, <laughs> the worst day, all of them. Uh, some specifically bad days. There was a day that a uh, white woman would not leave the, the drive-thru because we gave her a black Barbie. I know I already said this was in Florida, but just in case you forgot. Um, <laughs> Once a year, I had to clean the ball pit, ball by ball, dunking each individual ball while just whispering the Le Miserable soundtrack to myself. <laughs> there is a castle on a cloud. But the roughest day had to be, it was um, 9.30, in the morning, I was working my shift. My shift was always uh, 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. I always showed up at 6.10 because they didn't have all the power over me. <laughs> Which is also why I stayed so long. Like, if you always think you're gonna leave, you don't. And I was there at 9.30 in the morning, and um, I got the headset. I get an order, I have to tell the person, hey, you gotta hold because my manager Pete yells at me, Mackle, you got a phone call. My name is Michael, he always called me Mackle, uh, which makes me think his favorite fat liberal documentarian is the same as his favorite Seattle-based rapper, Macklemore. And he was like, Mackle, it's a phone call. So, so if you ever, if you're ever in the drive-through and the person puts you on hold, they are doing uh, one of three things. They are taking a dump, they are smoking a cigarette, or they're about to find out their grandma passed away, uh, which is what happened to me. So I get the phone, it's my mom. She's like, Grandma's gone, oh my God. She starts crying, literally the next thing I hear is, I said two bacon, egg, and cheese biscuits, please. <laughs> so it was a lot to emotionally process. <laughs> A lot to physically process for that customer. Uh, <laughs> I have to, I had to tell my mom, I have to take this order. And it's weird because she already just had one family member abruptly say goodbye and now a second one's about to. I, I end the phone call feeling like a real asshole. And I, uh, you know, I, I talked to Pete after I take the order. And I was like, Pete, you know, I gotta go home. And Pete, Pete was always a weird dude. He was really religious. He'd always say things like, you know, Mackle, you know what I think of that Kelly Clarkson? She's so filthy. Uh, <laughs> he gave me spare keys to the restaurant just in case the rapture happened. Uh, <laughs> because I was Jewish and I'd be there to take care of it. Uh, <laughs> But he always seemed, you know, he was there the whole time I was there. I always thought, you know, like, this is a guy that's got my back. You know, I've been here, he's been here. And I was like, you know, Pete, I gotta go home. My grandma passed away. And he just looks at me and goes, well, how old was she, Mackle? And I go, uh, she was 87 years old. And he goes, well, that's not that sad. <laughs> now listen. Part of me wanted to argue with him. All of me wanted to punch him in the face. But this is a guy that had been the manager of a fast food restaurant 
for 16 years and had his master's degree in business hanging up in his office. So if anyone was an expert in sadness, it was this guy. <laughs> I think it's what he minored in. Uh, <laughs> and I had to work the rest of my shift, you know? I'll tell you this, none of the meals were happy that day. Uh, thank God I was wearing my purple uniform so it hid the tears. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's something weird, like, you know, realizing that, like, someone is gone, but then also having to deal with the grief of someone realizing that their limited time rib sandwich wasn't available anymore. Uh, we were both bonding. Yes, everything is for a limited time. Uh, <laughs> grief may vary. Void were prohibited. Uh, <laughs> And <laughs> so, you know, I went home after that. Never didn't smell like French fries. Always smelled like French fries. Uh, uh, you know, and, and, and I just thought about it. You know, like, I, I still really miss my grandma. And the truth is, uh, we lost her in 2001, and she died in 2006. Um, and that's because she had Alzheimer's. Anyone here ever have a family member with Alzheimer's? Some of you probably didn't or just choosing to forget. Uh, <laughs> it's the worst. Someone raised their hand. It's the fucking worst, isn't it? It's, the, it's, it's like The Simpsons. You just have to choose when to let go. Um, <laughs> even though technically they're still there. And finding out that she was like dead dead was rough because the thing with Alzheimer's is you still hope there's that part of you that's like, you know, she's just a little forgetful. It's still good. It's still good. <laughs> Everyone has that moment when you have a relative with Alzheimer's, that moment where you know that's it. And, and the thing is, my grandma was tough. She was mean. Uh, she's probably the reason I became a roaster. Uh, just vicious, uh, you know, they do not make them uh, anymore like they make Lottie Stein and not just because no one's named their kid Lottie Stein <laughs> since the Prohibition era. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, she was just mean, and, but, but, but awesome. She used to call my dad, her ex-son-in-law, Chuck the Fat Fuck. Uh, <laughs> And, and made it work. We all were like, <laughs> that's my dad. <laughs> and I remember we brought him over to her retirement home. And the thing was, as her condition got worse, the retirement homes got worse. So she started off when she moved to Florida in a place called Vista View in Boca Raton. It sounds like Del Boca Vista from Seinfeld. Then she went to Century Village where living has no limits, even though there was funerals and ambulances there every day. Um, and then the place where it got really bad was a place called The Preserve. Because uh, irony ends at 70. And... I remember we, you know, she had so much fight in her. And then she started to lose that fight, and it was really sad. And the moment that we knew that it was gone was when we brought my dad in. And my dad was like, you know what, I'll stir her memories. And, she, you know, we're thinking, oh, man, here it comes. Chuck the fat fuck. Chuck the fat fuck. And she just goes, you look nice. Did you lose some weight? And we're like, no! No! 
He was 20 pounds heavier than when he last <laughs> saw her. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was just rough. Uh, they kicked her out of the retirement home eventually because she was in assisted living and had a, a, an affair with a guy in regular living who was 94. So it was literally like two centuries rubbing against each other. Um, and so like I said, finding out that she was gone, gone, it was like there was no fight anymore, that her fight was gone, and me choosing to work there meant that my fight was gone. Because that's there were many times I should have left. That was the time I should have left. I stayed for a couple months after that. I stayed for five more months still working there. And I used the inheritance. She left me a couple thousand bucks because it pays to have two dead husbands. Um, and I used that to move to New York and try my hand at stand-up comedy. Like, you know, like really professionally like I'm gonna do this because of her and I remember I'll always remember the last day that I was at work um, I went up to Pete and I was like I gotta you know I gotta go Pete I'll see ya he put his arm on my shoulder and he said don't worry Mackle if things don't work out in New York you're always welcome back here <laughs> and with the gruffness that my grandma taught me to have I just looked at him and I said don't you ever fucking threaten me like that again. <laughs> you fat fuck. Thank you so much, guys. Good morning, class. Today we're going to learn the McDonald's menu song. Here goes. Here goes. Big Mac McDLT, a quarter pounder with some cheese filet, a fish, a hamburger, a cheeseburger, a happy meal. Big Nuggets, tasty, golden fresh, or regular, a larger size of salad, chef, or garden, or a chicken salad, or any So it's the weekend of my 21st birthday. My girlfriend and I have been dating for like four months. I'm visiting her in New York City, and we're running through Manhattan on a sugar high. We bought cupcakes and a bottle of three-buck Chuck from Trader Joe's, and we're sitting at Rockefeller Center watching the ice skaters. We didn't have a bottle opener, so I grabbed a ballpoint pen out of my pocket and shoved the cork into the bottle, and we're drinking it right from the brown paper bag. And as the wine starts disappearing and my cheeks get redder, I lean over to her and whisper so my lips are touching her ear. And I say, you know, when I graduate, I'm going to move here so I can be with you. And she smiles and she kisses me. And to be honest, that whole weekend was kind of a blur of New York and Brooklyn and a lot, a lot, a lot of making out, right? So we'd be like walking somewhere and we'd just pull over to like the side of a building in Soho or like the middle of the sidewalk in Williamsburg and we start going at it making out and I would pull back as if people were like watching us and every single time I'd go it's okay it's okay it's okay it's my birthday um, and she would roll her eyes at me every single time but she still smiled and come that next May I did move to New York City 
and I remember turning the corner at JFK with my bags in my hand, and I saw her waiting for me. And at first, she kind of squealed and jumped up a little, and then she tried to play it off like it was no big deal, like whatever, you're just you're here, it's fine. But I hugged her, and I remember thinking, man, I don't know where I'm gonna work, I don't know where the hell I'm gonna live, but I know it's gonna be okay because we're here together. When my girlfriend and I had first started dating, I was super open about the fact that I was trans. Aside from the fact that it was super obvious, um, I just was never something that I like wasn't comfortable sharing. Um, but like every relationship I've ever had in my entire life, friend or romantic or otherwise, at some point we had to have that whole like, so what about that whole trans thing conversation? And this one happened in her kitchen. It was one of the first times I came to visit her. And she's making a curry and kind of bouncing between like the sink and the fridge and the stove. And she's like sauteing and chopping. And I'm just sitting on a stool answering all her questions. Um, and I tell her, you know, I really want to start testosterone. I really want to have top surgery. Like, those are the two things that I need to feel like my best, fullest self. Um, and she says, I think you're perfect right now, but I'm excited to see what happens. I took my first shot of testosterone on January 2nd, 2013. I was two days into a New Year's Eve hangover. And at some point in that like 36 hour window, that clammy nausea of a lot of bad choices had morphed into like a clammy nausea of nervousness. And so I'm on a train to my doctor's office and I, it's January, it's like 10 degrees out. I'm in a t-shirt, I've sweat all the way through it and my face is like ghost white. But I get to the doctor's office and my girlfriend is with me because um, she's we're, the doctor's going to teach the both of us how to do these shots, right? Because I have to take one of these shots every week for the rest of my life. And I figure there are a lot of weeks in the rest of my life. Like, what if something happens to me one week? What if I can't do it? So I want her to learn too. So I'm laying on the table as the doctor prepares the syringe and as she's showing my girlfriend how to get everything ready and how to wipe my shoulder, my, my side down with alcohol. And I just remember thinking like here the three of us are all of us together about to start this huge change for my life like my entire future is in the hands of these two people which was incredibly nerve-wracking but also felt really safe and really nice like I thought you know here's a thing that I'm doing for me but also it's something that that my girlfriend and I get to kind of go through together right so the thing about transitioning uh, is that it is an awful lot like puberty except two things. One, you are way too old for puberty to be socially acceptable anymore. <laughs> and two, it's fucking awesome. It's, I loved everything about transitioning. Like every zit I got, I loved it. Every weird back hair I got, I loved it. The stinky way I smelled all of a sudden, loved it. Uh, I got so good at like curling my upper lip over my teeth in a bathroom mirror, like just under the lighting enough to like see if any hairs were a little darker. They were never darker. It's fine, <laughs> it's fine. Uh, but I loved all of it, right? Uh, so about a year in, a change that I was like, knew was coming but still wasn't entirely expecting showed up and it hit me while I'm riding my bike to work right so I'm riding my bike and I just feel like I can't sit right on my seat like I think like like there's a seam wrong in my jeans or something I'm like sitting there like adjusting and kind of like like wiggling around in my seat while I'm trying to bike still and I'm just like oh I just can't get comfortable and I get to work and I kind of forget about it and then at some point in my shift I have to use the bathroom right so I get in the bathroom pull my pants down and holy shit, there's my clit. The thing about testosterone that you probably do not know 
because people do not like to talk about it is that it makes your click grow, right? Like a significant amount. Um, and I'm not a scientist, but I'm pretty certain there's like a good quality of life reason that all those nerve endings are generally like tucked away. Because um, like once they were out, they were like ready to go. Like they were there. Um, for like a solid year, I couldn't ride the train to work without being aroused. I couldn't ride my bike over a bumpy road without being aroused. I couldn't wear denim that was too tight without being aroused, right? Which would have been just awesome, <laughs> except at that point in time, my relationship looked like this. We'd been together for almost two years. We lived together. About four or five nights a week, we'd order food off Seamless. Pizza if it was my choice, Indian if it was her choice, and something super fucking weird if she was on one of her vegan kicks. Um, happened a lot. Uh, we'd watch like crappy TV, sitting on the couch but never touching. Usually there'd be like a pillow or a dog in between us. And then like at nine, not ashamed of it, I'd go to bed. Um, I'd have to be at work at six the next morning, so I'd go to bed early. She'd come in a couple hours later. I wouldn't notice that she came in. We wouldn't touch. We maybe kissed at that point, but it was like kissing for us had transferred from a desire thing to like an obligation thing. It was like if a kiss was like a business handshake, like just something you know you're supposed to do out of courtesy. Um, and you know, that was, so that was where we at. We were so very much not having sex that we once went to a wedding, like a literal celebration of love and doing it, we got like, only fun drunk, like not blackout or angry drunk, but like we stayed steady at that like dancey shouty drunk, came home to the bed that we shared on, shit you not, our actual anniversary and did not have sex. So that's how not sex we were having. Um, and I tried to bring it up once and she said, but you go to bed so early, I go to bed later than you. If we don't like get into bed at the same time, how are we ever supposed to have sex? Okay. I tried to bring it up once, and she said, I'm just really stressed out about work stuff. She was a freelancer. She was bouncing through gigs a lot. I said, okay. I tried to bring it up another time, and she said, you're just always in such a bad mood. Like, I love you, but you're grumpy all the time. You're, you're, you just are in such a bad mood all the time. And that was something that became a refrain in our relationship, that I was always in a bad mood. And one of those times that I was in a bad mood, supposedly, I, I think that what happened was that I had forgot to, I made myself dinner and I forgot to make enough for her. She got offended and she got mad. And maybe I should have made some for her, but I am fairly certain that what I cooked was something she wouldn't have eaten anyway, like it had cumin in it or like it was dairy on another one of those vegan kicks. But either way, she was mad. I didn't make enough for her. It was disrespectful, whatever. And during the fight, I said, during the, like, not quite a fight, I said something kind of snippy. I must have. And she just says, uh, you're always in such a bad mood. It's your testosterone. I don't understand what's so good about it. It's got all these bad side effects. It makes you such a pest. It's pestosterone. <laughs> pestosterone. And I remember in that moment, for the first time, thinking, wow, you know, I, I love Transitioning. I love testosterone. I love what it's done for me. And I never for a second stopped to think that maybe she didn't. But I was insistent on continuing to transition. And for me, the next part of that meant having top surgery. 
and she was ready and she was helping. She drove me to my consultation with my surgeon. She helped me fundraise. We had this whole plan ready, right? She was going to drive me down to Baltimore where I was having surgery. She was going to stay with me for the week. My mom was going to fly in. They were both going to take care of me and it was going to be great. And we had it all planned. And then about a month before top surgery, I get home from work one night and she's sitting in the living room and I can tell something's wrong. And Part of me does not want to ask because I really want to go to bed early and I know it's going to be like a thing. Um, And so I like suss it out for a second. Like, is this like an ignorable thing or am I going to be in trouble if I don't ask? And I decided I had to ask. So I sat across the room from her in a chair and I just said, you know, like, what's up? What's wrong? You don't look okay. And she said, I don't want to re-sign our lease. We're breaking up. And the first thing I thought about, like, it didn't even cross my mind that my almost four-year relationship was ending. The first thing I thought was, but I have surgery in a month, and you promised. And I have to get there, and I need you. I, like, I have no choice, I need you. And as if she knew what I was thinking, she said, and I know surgery is really important to me, and if you'll let me, like, I'd still like to take you, but like, yeah, our relationship is super over. And because I was desperate, I said yes. I said, you can still come with. I remember waking up from the anesthesia and it kind of feeling like I was rising up from the floor back into my body. And I remember feeling it in my feet first and I was still so out of it that I couldn't open my eyes. And then I sort of felt my legs and I could feel this like scratchy hospital blanket on me. And I kind of, you know, and then all of a sudden I felt this sharp pain across my chest before I even remembered why I had gone under in the first place. Um, but I just felt this like searing hot pain across my chest and I I was kind of twisting in, in bed and just like really really pathetically just going help help as if like that was going to get anyone's attention and then a nurse comes in and she sees that I'm awake and she says oh oh you know like hi you're awake like what can I get you and the first thing I said was where's Megan and she said she's right in the waiting room I'll go get her And as I'm like sort of waking up, I hear the nurse get on the phone and I hear her say, he's woken up and he's asking for you. Why don't you drive back now? And the first thing I think was, holy shit, that nurse just lied to me. Like I'm, (laughs) I'm high, but I'm not stupid. Like, and then I think she didn't wait for me. She wasn't there. I was going through the most important surgery of my life and she wasn't there. And I thought to myself, you have to start not needing her right now. Which is super great in theory, but that is not how recovering from a surgery works, right? I needed her for everything. I needed her to bathe me. I needed her to lift anything that was more than five pounds. I needed her to reach above this level because I couldn't move my arm past my shoulder. I needed her to help me put shirts on. And so for the next couple weeks, whether I liked it or not, I needed her. But, you know, like three weeks after surgery, you know, I'm standing in front of the mirror and I'm looking at my scars and they are super gross. <laughs> They're like still very bloody because uh, I, I still can't like entirely scrub myself down and I'm all bruised. Like it's, it's a wound. It's an injury. Um, I'm like purple and yellow and it's, it's just disgusting. But I'm also so proud of them and I'm so excited And her stuff is all in boxes behind me, and I can kind of see it as I scan the room, you know, like everything that's about to disappear as she moves out. And 
part of me is really angry and and a little part of me is still angry because I had I had one chance to transition, right? And now every single one of these memories has her in it and I can't redo it and I can't undo it and I can't forget that she was there. But when I'm not mad about it, the more important thing that I started to realize right there in front of the mirror and have kept learning and, and definitely know now is that it doesn't really matter that I transitioned into somebody that she didn't want anymore because I transitioned into exactly who I wanted and I transitioned into exactly who I needed me to be. Thank you. This is Aloe Black behind me now, and we just heard from Miles Walser, who you can find on Twitter at Kilometers W. That is a pun that I did not get on the night of that live show in Madison, and now that I'm looking back at it now, I still don't get it. Now, I am going to let you in on a little behind-the-scenes secret, folks. Even though this episode is going up, on January 1st, 2018, believe it or not, my voice that you're hearing right now was recorded way back in December of 2017. So I have not yet tried our next sponsor's thing, but I'm very, very much planning on it. And you'll understand when you hear what it is. It's Beachbody On Demand. Beachbody On Demand is this online fitness streaming service that gives you unlimited access to a wide variety of highly effective world-class workouts personalized to meet your needs. Beachbody On Demand also includes extensive nutritional content, all proven to help people achieve their health and fitness goals. It's a total package to help you become the total package that you want to be this year. Familiar brands are 
Pio P90X Insanity 21 Day Fix T25 Three Week Yoga Retreat. Here's the deal. I spoke to the Beachbody people just today on the phone, and they were explaining, hey, Kevin, okay, so you're way, 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 way out of shape. So maybe you want to put together a package that's just 20 minutes a day or, uh, you know, a beginner's yoga sort of package. But the Beachbody On Demand folks have been putting together all of these classes for years and years and years. So you can be an absolute beginner or you can be a super, super hardcore very experienced person. They've got cardio, weight training, yoga, low impact, dance, a whole it's like having a gym membership with streaming classes that you can watch right there on your computer, your web-enabled TV, any web-enabled device. There's no need to go to a gym or schedule a class. Everything is right there on your personal device. So give this service a try. Here's the thing. Right now, Risk listeners can get a free trial membership, a free trial membership when you text RISK to 303030. Text that and you'll get full access to this entire platform for free, all the workouts and the nutrition information, free for a trial run, just text RISK to 303030. Okay then. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from Atsuko Okatsuka. She is a, a stand up comedian and writer uh, based in the Los Angeles area. This was recorded at the Risk Live show at the Bootleg Theater, where we are once each month in Los Angeles. Here she is now, Atsuko Okatsuka, with a story we call Head to Head. Chinese words being yelled that I don't understand. Boom, bang, crash. More Chinese words being yelled that I don't understand. Boom, bang, crash. Those were the sounds of my mother throwing plates, pots, and pans at my father, but definitely missing and hitting the wall. Boom, bang, crash. My mom is schizophrenic which means she hears voices in her head and sees people sometimes that aren't really there. While we were living in Japan, her voices got really bad, really, really loud. And when it happened, she would throw temper tantrums and take it out on people, most of the times at my father. It was always minuscule little things like you forgot the groceries or you left the plate out from last night. But this time it had gotten really violent. I had never seen it like this. 
While she was doing this in the kitchen, I got so scared, I ran into my bedroom, got on the ground, rocked myself back and forth, and tried to muffle out the sounds. Very moonlight. Very cinematic. <laughs> Boom, bang, crash. You motherfucker. Now that, I understood. Suddenly, the door to my bedroom opened, and it was my father. Shh, he said. I wanted to run to him. I wanted to say, Dad, I'm so scared. But shh, no, shh. He came and sat across from me on the ground, took my forehead against his, and stared into my eyes, as if to say, I can't say anything right now, because she might get mad, but I'm here with you. Soon after, they got a divorce, for obvious reasons. As the system usually prefers the mother in custody situations, that's what happened, and my mom got full custody of me. Nice one, your honor. <laughs> and with that, my mom moved us far, far away from my father. She moved us to the United States of America. My dad was heartbroken. And I was too. She said we were coming here on a two-month vacation. So I packed lightly. And then we overstayed our visa by seven years. And that is how you become undocumented immigrants. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> and, and when you're an undocumented immigrant, you're, when you're undocumented here, you can't leave the country if you want to come back in. So we were essentially stuck here. For seven long years, me and my dad would write each other, and we would call each other. But soon, that diminished because it was really hard. The distance was hard on us, and it was emotionally too much to bear. So the letters stopped and the phone calls stopped. Every year, we would apply for our green card via the lottery, and every year, we would get denied. And on the seventh year, they drew out my mom and my name. So we got our green card. And the first thing I did after that was buy a plane ticket to go see my dad. By now, my dad had moved to Bali to retire, so off to Indonesia I went. When I got to the airport, I recognized him immediately. I could see him waiting, short stature, glasses, high cheekbones. I get these from him. I couldn't even run, I was so excited to see him. My body wouldn't move. I wanted to take in everything from afar. And then when I walked up to him, we embraced. Next to him was a woman. Now, some people go to Bali and then find themselves. My father, on the other hand, went to Bali and found a wife. My new stepmom, his new wife. I only had a week there, so we had a lot to catch up on. Like, how did you meet this person? <laughs> and throughout our week there, you know, I started noticing that he was still the same person, which really comforted me. You know, he was still frugal. He would take us on a long, long walk far away to get to a grocery store because they sold beers that were 10 cents cheaper than the grocery store right by his house. In Japan, he owned 12 cats. And by owned, I use the word owned loosely because they were stray cats that he kept feeding and suddenly had 12 cats. <laughs> In Bali, 
he owned 12 stray rabbit dogs. The stakes are higher, you know what I mean? If you live in Indonesia, by the way, you will inherently own 12 dogs. That's just how it works in Indonesia. Everything was the same, and then suddenly, the last day came. The last day of my trip in Bali with my father and my stepmom. That night, he cooked his specialty, prepackaged curry. We ate and we drank a lot. We drank whiskey, it was flowing, we ran out, we started drinking this shiner that was Indonesian that didn't even have a label on it that his neighbor made, and it was just drinking and drinking, sharing stories about our past, laughing, talking politics, he loves talking history. We were having a great time. But during that time, I started noticing that my stepmom is actually a really sloppy drunk. She starts slurring her words, slurring, slurring. And I knew that she was drunk because she kept calling Obama, Osama. <laughs> and I was surprised too, it was like the first time I had really heard her talk. You talk? Yes. That Osama, you really like him. So drunk. And then suddenly her words started getting harsh. She started making fun of my dad's sister, calling her a hoarder saying that she was mentally ill because of it. Then she said, you know, your father, he'd never been good at picking women. Oh no, no, he surrounds himself with crazy women. I mean, just look at your mom. How did he not know that she was mentally ill before he married her? And she went on and on attacking, attacking and attacking. And this whole time, I wanted to say something so bad, you know? Like, first of all, you might be right about him picking women. <laughs> Second of all, you suck, you know? I didn't say those things though, I didn't say those things though. My dad interjected and he finally yelled and raised his voice and he was like, you cannot talk about my family like this. You can't make fun of my, my, my sister and you will not talk badly about my ex-wife. Not in front of Otsuko on her last night here. How dare you? And he stormed off. Where are you going? I was stuck here with her. <laughs> There I am. And then as she got more comfortable and started drinking more, she started telling me that she should have never married my father. Your father, he doesn't understand women. I should have never married him. I should have never married him. She started crying, crying, holding my hand, trying to find comfort in me. I should have never married him. He's just such a submissive, stupid guy. I just should have never married him. You know, I married him because he lets me live comfortably. You know, he pays for everything. You know, it's really nice. I couldn't say anything, I just got up and followed my father. I found him in his bedroom, on the ground, sitting cross-legged with just the nightlight on. I sat right across from him and there were tears in his eyes. And I said, Dad, are you okay? And he said, yeah, yeah, I am but I really missed you. And I said, Dad, remember when you used to take your forehead against mine like this and you would stare into my eyes? And he said, yeah, yeah, I do. And I said, now I'm doing it 
to you. And that's my story. Thank you so much. is all for this week's episode of Risk, folks. This is Alice Merton behind me now, and we just heard from Atsuko Ukatska. You can find her on Twitter at Atsuko Comedy. That's A-T-S-U-K-O Comedy. Let me list for you guys where Risk is appearing live next. On January 20th, we are at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. On January 20th, we are also at the Swedish American Hall in San Francisco. I'll be at that show at the Swedish American Hall in San Francisco on January 20th. Guy Branham, Dana Gould, Biz Ellis, and Marcella Arguello will all be there. Now, on January 26th, we will have our first ever show at Caveat on the Lower East Side on Clinton Street in Manhattan. So come on out, New York, on January 26th. We're at Caveat on the Lower East Side. Well, listen, this is a good year to get more involved with us at risk. First of all, you can start sharing the show with friends and family. You can teach people how to download the podcast if they don't know how. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at Risk Show. You can start pitching us your stories if you go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. You can check out some of our training at thestorystudio.org. Maybe take a one-on-one Skype session with me or download one of our video courses. You can check out all of our extra bonus content at our Patreon if you become a member at patreon.com risk. It's a huge help. A lot of people don't realize this, but it actually is a huge help to us. If you leave a positive review for the show in the podcast section of iTunes, it brings a lot of attention to the show. So anyway, lots of ways to get involved with us in 2018. We hope to hear more from you and work more with you. (laughs) Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
Come on, mellow off. I Man, it's a brand new year. Bye, bye, bye.